Mountain. We are Radio Catskill. Welcome to the local edition. News and information to keep you connected. This is the local edition on Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills. I'm your host for this Friday evening, Patricio Robayo. Before we get into tonight's program, quick look at the weather. Tonight, chance of snow between 7 and 9 p.m. Cloudy with a low around 8. Wind chill values as low as minus 8. That's right, minus 8. Saturday, cloudy with a high near 17. Again, wind chill values as low as minus 8. Please, please be safe. Saturday night, cloudy with a low around 9. Sunday, sunny with a high near 23 degrees. In the second half of the show, we'll speak to Julia Fell from the Bethel Woods Center for the Arts, finding out why they're trying to capture the stories of Woodstock. But first, it's Friday on the local edition, and every other Friday, we check in with the one and only Chris Rowley from the Schwamkook Journal. Chris, welcome to the program. One of the big stories we have here is that Ellenville might be running out of money. Everybody knows that Ellenville has had a, a difficult couple of decades. It lost the factories. It lost a lot of other businesses. And basically has been skating on ever thinner ice since then. And the only, uh, the, the village does not have any reserve fund. And every other municipality with, with, that can builds a reserve fund for rainy days. Ellenville had used that up long ago. And what it does have is the mountain money. In uh, late 90s, 96, 77, Ellenville sold this tract on the Shangam Ridge that had been bought in the late 1990s for $10,000, I think, uh, is about a square mile. And they sold it to the Open Space Initiative and it's being worked on and then conveyed into the park system and will become part of either the Sands Point Reserve or Minnewaska State Park eventually. For that, they got $3.88 million and they, ha- they can keep that until t- 2026 when it has to all be used up and mo- or moved into the general fund. So they have already gone to it a few because in 2010 and 2015, <clears throat> due to being in fiscal terrible issues, they, they required to take a, a million at a time out of it uh, to balance their budget. They also went into it to get another half million uh, to buy the uh, form of Gunk Golf Club, which is now the Joseph Steckler Memorial uh, Park and Golf Club. And, of course, there's a lot of questions about that, and people are very critical of that. But on the other hand, it's the most beautiful piece of property around. It's gorgeous, and eventually, if Annabelle becomes a prosperous, successful village again, it will be a marvelous park and an incredible amenity, and it, and, and it can be a golf course. Golf course is doing okay at this point. Anyway, just moving right along here, giving you the back text. They are now in a complete crisis, though, because although the village manager, Michael Warren, has been there four years, has been a year after year coming up with some wheeze or other to keep the, the boat afloat. This year, his weeds fell apart. 
because he was counting on a $536,000 payment of a way overdue water bill to the old Neverly. This is the this is the Neverly company that went bankrupt and went out of business 2009. Their bankruptcy was concluded in 2017. I'm actually not sure what court it was held in, but I believe it was it would have been on Long Island because that's where the business partners were lived and, and where, where their working address was. Unfortunately. This is complex, but hold on. In any water district, you have inside users, and anybody who's in the village of Elmville will be an inside user, and you have outside users. And if you're outside the village, like the Neverly, just outside, that makes you an outside user. In the event of a bankruptcy, the bills attached to the outside users can be just blown away by the judge who says, nah, too bad. And so there went the 526000 that uh, Michael Warren, the village manager, was counting on, uh, and he didn't know. For some reason or other, they, the court never notified the village of Ellenville that this had happened. Nobody notified them, and for some other reason, they didn't know that it was happening, and they never found out until November, when the new Neverly owners, the Somerset Group, completed the the purchase of the property, at which point the village was expecting to get a payment of that 526000 to make up this bill. Now, another little wrinkle. The original water bill was 180000 Interest applied over the years has taken it to more than half a million. So there you go. But anyway, they didn't get it. And the village attorney, Ian Morrison, went looking for it and discovered that it had been blown away in the winds back in 2017 which was a bad moment for the village manager and the team at Ellenville. Anyway, at the same time, Ellenville has changed mayors. Jeff Kaplan has left after 22 years and been replaced by Evan Trent. And so Evan is now with us on Tuesday nights, 16 days into the job and confronting an incredibly difficult financial crisis. Therefore, a public hearing was called. An emergency meeting, sorry, not a public hearing. Emergency meeting was called the first step to a public hearing, beginning a process of discovering what can be done. And then one thing they can do is then say still 1.2 million in the mountain money fund is they can go and raid the mountain money again. Now, they don't want to, Evan Trent, the new mayor, doesn't want to take all of that. He wants to take uh, a bit here, a bit there, just whatever is needed to keep them going as they search desperately for another funding source. People have, I know he met yesterday with Assemblyman Brian Mayer of Montgomery, but not Brian, nice guy, but he's Republican. <laughs> what a Republican Assemblyman can do in a Democratic Albany, I don't know. But there you go, that's another issue. Maybe he can, maybe the state doesn't want to see Ellenville turn into a black hole. That's not going to be on their, their agenda. But coming up with money from the state would take a long time. It's a very difficult thing to do. And it's the same for the county. And, and another person has noted that um, Jan Metzger, the county executive, is sitting on a pile of uh, ARPA cash. Uh, as much, I've heard these numbers, I don't know. I haven't heard them from that, her, so I might be wrong here. But, and excuse me, Jan, if I am, as much as $50 million. So If she's sitting on $50 million, can she find some way, somehow, to scrape up half a million to plug the hole at uh, those 
financial war. But anyway, come Tuesday, there's a very lively meeting. A lot of people are crowded into the village of Annabelle courtroom to to hear about it. And, and, and of course, the crowd breaks into two easily defined chunks. One chunk are the people who know what's going on. I would say a lot of them are readers of the Shangam Journal. Others follow the local radio. They listen to Jeff. They listen to WMC. They're aware. They know what's happening, right? And they probably, them, some of them will be up, completely up to date because they follow the Shangam Journal page on their phone. So they know hour by hour, in some cases, what's happening. And then the other group, not. <laughs> That's all I can say is that good people, brave souls, but they just haven't been keeping up and they don't know what's going on. And they, for them, this was a, a chaotic moment and they were unhappy and they didn't really understand. Here's the brutal facts of the situation. The numbers really are brutal. Because of the value of the village as assessed, the assessed value is a certain amount. Raising taxes is constrained by the New York State Controller's Office. The total income, therefore, that's available to the village administration is $3,118,704.32. I don't know where the 32 cents comes from, but that's it. That's what they got. Uh, they have to run the whole village out of that. Now, one issue is the police. Allenville has a police department. It's villages often do, and... There are a few towns that do that as well. The Ellenville Police Department costs payroll is one million two hundred forty-eight thousand. With benefits, insurance, and retirements, that rises to two million and seventy-eight thousand two hundred forty dollars. That's two-thirds of the entire funding available to the village. You can see that this is really a problem. And the village of Ellenville has been in fiscal distress before. Uh, it was marked that way by the state controller's office in 2014. Uh, and, and that was what drove them in 2015 to take a, a million from the mountain money then. But this current crisis is also impelled by the change in the assessed value of the village and the town in the 2016 revaluation, which was a very stressful thing for a lot of taxpayers. What basically happened was the village was being overtaxed by in terms of its assessed values and the town relatively undertaxed by its assessed values. Now, anybody in the town who agree, doesn't agree with that, well, there you go. But I live in the town and I can tell you my taxes went up 70%. <laughs> That's terrible, yeah. But what it also shows is just how undertaxed this property was. That, that it could go up that much from the revaluation tells me that before the revaluation, we weren't really being taxed appropriately. I know it's hard to say that kind of thing, but there you go. The village, though, individuals, property owners, they benefited because their taxes went down. Since then, though, their values have gone up and they need to be revalued, and gradually that's happening. But the effect on the village finances was to what they could obtain by tax by as much as figures are bandied around. The one I've heard the most is about 15%. And that's any, take any business and say, oh, you've just lost 15% of your income. And they'll start looking for how they go into bankruptcy. It's just the way it goes. The village was immediately thrown into that. 
previous Mayor Kaplan and everybody they had to let a lot of people go. It was redundancies. It was I don't think they fired very many people because of union contracts and the rest of it. But it was an immediate, hey, everybody off the deck, we have to empty the boat. And they did that. And so in a way, since then, since about 2017, the village has been running on a skeleton scarf. It's been very lightweight. And now it's reached the, the sort of the grim point where they have to get some mountain money again. And the, the people in the village are being asked to, will be asked. Uh, Monday, there's going to be a request for a public hearing. They'll come to a public hearing and go forward in this process. Like you mentioned before that, you know, there is a new mayor now. And this is one of the first big jobs he has. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if you've married somebody and you find that they're just about to be charged for multiple murder. <laughs> it's what? I didn't know. No, Evan is a great guy. He's an IT guy. He's young. He's quick thinking. He's going to be able to, ha he's going to have to be. And he and everybody are going to be working very hard on this. And another story that we've been following here is across the state really is, is housing. And one issue that affects housing is short-term rentals and what that does to the housing market. What can you tell us what's happening in Ellenville? We are looking, looking around Ulster County, Sullivan County. You can see there are places that have short-term rental laws in place. They want to control the number of short-term rentals, Airbnbs and VRBO. Those are the primary ones, but there are those that are just completely off in, in their own world. and They're just doing it themselves. There's a lot of it. It's increased a lot. There's concern, exactly as you said, about it taking part of the rental market, which is already tight. Rents have gone up, and they're going to continue to go up because we haven't had enough building of new properties for the rental market to cope with any increases in demand. That's one issue. The other issue is, is that some places, Town of Warsing is one of them, they don't have any law, nothing. They have, and they have zero idea, as Mike Machada, town board member, said it uh, memorably at the board meeting last night, they have zero idea of what's out there. They don't know. And that's scary because there might be 100 of them. There might be 200. There might be 400. There's no knowing. And then that opens up a whole, I don't want to say can of worms, but it is. It is. It's a can possibly of jewelry, but it's also <laughs> possibly something you wouldn't want. Of what condition are they in? Are they safe? Can, and can the town building department take on the job of inspections for some higher level beyond just homeowners? Now, all these properties are already inspected. They have a, have a record with the town. They all have their old files. But would, would, would short-term rental law require another level of inspection? In that case, as Mr. Bichetta said quite memorably, there's no way that our building department with the current staff could do that. And that's one of those issues. However, other towns have been doing this for a while, and Wawarsing is just basically catching up. I note that Woodstock has been in, was ahead in this, and it's had Airbnbs and VRBOs for a while, and the name with some traction in New York City and everywhere else. I believe they have about 285 short-term rental licenses in Woodstock, and so they, they have a track record of dealing with it, or whatever. Anyway, there, there, there was, it was a, a fairly lively meeting to discuss a public hearing at the town board last night uh, to discuss this, and there are a lot of issues that come up with it, right? One, 
municipalities don't make any much money out of this. The only tax money would be Ulster County's uh, bed tax, which has been doubled recently to 4%. But that goes to the county. Now, some of it may trickle back down to the town. I'm sure it would one way or another. And there are benefits. Uh, there are great benefits to a town of having uh, a lively... Uh, having, I mean, if you don't have hotels, if you don't have inns, then, you've got to, then you don't have anything. Unless you have Airbnb and VRBO. And the Levy Heck, a well known figure in the village of Allenville and the town of Bullworthing, made that point quite clearly. He said it's essential to have a lively short term rental market to bring new people here. And there is a process. We saw it very clearly with the pandemic. People came to our region, they came to Sullivan County, they came here to Ulster County, to then stayed in Airbnbs or VRBOs. They stayed there. They got an idea of what it's like here. They got to see the Shangam Ridge and it's all its beauty. They got to see the lakes. They got to hike. And then they went back to Brooklyn. And maybe some of them thought, why don't we look at the housing market up there? Maybe we get ourselves a second home, a summer home, something. Because 500 square feet here in Brooklyn, it's getting old. And next thing we know, we have a whole tidal, tidal, not tidal wave, but we have a reasonable wave of new people coming here, bringing new energy, new money, new ideas to our towns and villages. And Ellenville has really benefited from that, benefited from that. And they, many of them came first and stayed in an Airbnb or similar. You want it. And Mr. Heck was very clear about this. He made that point. And that's something that the town will take on board and as they consider it. The process now is a public hearing. And then it'll, meanwhile, the new law that they've come up with, the proposed law, goes to the planning board, it's already gone to the county, county's given comments, the planning board will examine it, and that process has begun. And somewhere in a few months, they maybe August, uh, they'll, they'll be considered passing this law, and then they'll have some idea of what they're doing, and some idea perhaps eventually of how many short-term rentals there are in the town of Wilworsing. That was Chris Rowley from the Shortcut Journal. We'll be right back talking to Julia Fell, the curator of exhibits at the museum at Bethel Woods. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hey, it's Patricio from Radio Catskill. Guess what? Tonight, I'm hosting a music show. It's all about cover songs. I'll be playing a variety of cover songs, ranging from obscure ones to some you might know. Uh, I think the station's already regretting letting me do this. Cover me at 7 on Radio Catskill. Tune in. You know I need you to be Hi there, this is Brian, host of The Secret Show. Friday nights at 9. I'll be playing a mix of indie, alternative, college, rock, and pop. Some new music and some old classics. That's The Secret Show, Friday nights at 9, only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Welcome back to the local edition. 
on Radio Catskill, your NPR station. Did you know the average age of the Woodstock Festival attendee is over 75 years old? As the generation of peace and love continues to age, the clock is ticking on capturing their stories before they are lost forever. That's why Bethel Woods Center for the Arts is expanding its Woodstock Oral History Initiative from upstate New York to across the country. Tim Bruno recently spoke to Julia Fell, the curator of exhibits at the Museum of Bethel Woods, about the effort. Let's remind folks about the Woodstock Oral History Initiative and how it all started. Yeah, uh, it was a really important decision on our part to start collecting these stories, which was brought about for a couple of reasons. One is after the 50th anniversary of Woodstock in 2019, that I'm sure a lot of your listeners remember, uh, we had to figure out what we were going to do for the next 50 years to prepare for, dare I say, the 100th anniversary of Woodstock. Um, So we were thinking strategically about what that meant, and then before we knew it, the COVID pandemic had set in, and people were thinking about their legacies even more than they had been the year previous. So we took advantage of the rise of Zoom technology and people wanting to share their stories at this pivotal moment to start this initiative. So how many have you obtained so far? And what's the goal in the terms of the numbers that you're trying to get? Well, the goal is as many as possible um, with a stretch goal, really, realistically, of perhaps 4,500 oral history interviews, which would be about 1% of Woodstock attendees. So far, we've collected a little over 600. Okay. And so now there's sort of a sense of urgency as this generation is aging. So uh, what are you doing now this year and how are you expanding the initiative? Yeah. um, So we have been very fortunate over the last several years to be able to expand the capacity that we have to work on this project, uh, largely in part due to grant funding. So last year we had a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services that allowed us to initiate our uh, oral history pop-up program idea, which meant that we were going to take recording equipment on the road and go to meet storytellers where they are rather than having them come to the museum. So we were able to do that very successfully for a whole year under that grant. And now in 2024, we are very fortunate to have been awarded a grant from the National Endowment of the Humanities to continue that concept and take our pop-up programming on the road to meet people where they are all over the country. And your goal here is to find some people and communities that have been historically underserved in this initiative. How did you go about choosing these communities? Well, there's a lot of people out there who were involved in movements that we we learn about in school, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the gay movement. And we know that there are people out there who were involved in those things and people who were at Woodstock who fit into the demographics um, that took part in these movements. But we can tell after having been conducting this initiative for we're entering our fourth year now, that we don't have the percentage of those perspectives that you would ex- you would expect. So we know that those stories are out there, but we know that those people are not coming to us. So throughout this whole project and this whole concept of meeting people where they are, we've been hoping to reach more diverse narrators. The grant that we're working under this year and the project we're doing in 2024 is even more targeted. So what we're doing is working with community partners who have connections within communities of color, within the LGBTQ plus community, and more um, to find those stories and really make deep personal connections with the help of people who exist within those communities. 
and I noticed that you're wisely starting in Fort Lauderdale and then heading through uh, Orlando and Tampa throughout the month of January to reach folks there and then moving on to the Northeast and other areas. You're looking for people, not just that participated like as a concert goer, but people that work there, volunteered there. Why is it important to get all of these different perspectives? Well, I always like to say that Woodstock isn't just one story. It's 450,000 stories. And if you look at the entire decade of the 1960s and the various social movements that took place, it's millions of stories. We can't tell Woodstock just from one perspective. We can't tell the 1960s just from one perspective. So it is really important in order to understand entirely about Woodstock as an event and about the decade that it took place in, that we get all of those puzzle pieces, not just one. Is there a particular story that strikes you uh, as kind of, sort of standing out or, or just one that you go back to? Oh, gosh. I've interviewed There's so many, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, personally, I've interviewed over 300 people myself. Oh, so wow. it can be a little hard to, to figure out one that stands out above the rest. However, I will say one that I do often ask my interns and other people who I'm working with to um, listen to and read is the story of Norman and Lydia Gaines, who I interviewed a couple of years ago, who are just this fabulous couple, um, have been together forever, had the uh, are actually an interracial couple and had that experience and attended Woodstock together. And their perspectives, not only on Woodstock, but on the 1960s, on what it meant to be a hippie or a freak or a free spirit, just helped me understand and really get a context for the event that I had never seen before. Um, it's another reason why it's so important for us to get so many different stories from people of different racial backgrounds, different economic experiences, people who are involved in the counterculture, people who were on the periphery. There's just so many different perspectives, and we can't possibly understand unless we hear as many as possible. So if there's a hippie or a freak or a free spirit that wants to attend one of these pop-ups where you're traveling throughout the country to get more personal experiences, how can they learn more and attend? Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways. Um, you can go to our website at BethelWoodsCenter.org slash oral history to pull up a page there with more information about what we're up to. There's also a form on that page that will help you sign up for an appointment if you're interested. Or you can email us directly at oralhistory at BethelWoodsCenter.org to find out more. And if someone can't attend, you can still participate virtually, excuse me, uh, by emailing that same address. Yes, yes. We are still uh, doing Zoom interviews very regularly. We also do interviews at the museum if you happen to be local. So there's a lot of different ways we can get in touch with you, and we want to make sure that we hear your story, however that happens. Before we go, we should mention that the museum at Bethel Woods has once again been nominated for USA Today's 10 Best Reader's Choice Travel Awards. So you're nominated. There's a contest, though, so folks can vote uh, for the candidate of their choice, right? Yeah, there's uh, there's... I believe you can vote once a day up until the contest ends. So if you, like me, love Bethel Woods and the museum at Bethel Woods, definitely hop onto USA Today's website and check out how to vote. Get on there every day. Make your voice heard. Yeah, last year I uh, came in fourth and uh, want to break into the top three in the nation. So you can help vote for the museum at Bethel Woods. Uh, that's 10best.usatoday.com. And again, the email for folks that want to learn more about the pop-ups for oral histories or participate virtually, email is oralhistory at BethelWoodCenter.org. And we've been speaking to Julia Fell, curator of exhibits at the Museum at Bethel Woods. 
Thank you so much for joining us. And do you get to go to Florida? I'm not in Florida, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, but my boss is enjoying the warm weather, and I'm looking forward to doing lots of other traveling throughout the year. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks so much, Tim. And that does it for the local edition. Thank you so much to my first guest, Chris Rowley, letting us know what's happening in Ellenville, Boston County. Also, again, thank you to Julia Feld from the Bethel Woods Center for the Arts. We'll be back on Monday talking to Sullivan County government about older New Yorkers and checking in with New York Focus about foreclosure homes. This is all happening on Monday on the local edition at 6. Find us on social media. We're at WJFF Radio. We're on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, Threads. We're there. Find us on our website, WJFFRadio.org. I've been your host, Patricio Robaya, for this Friday evening. Everyone stay safe. Enjoy the weekend. Have a good night, Lucy. And I'll talk to you soon. Oh, and don't forget, 7 o'clock, I'm hosting a music show. Cover me at 7 in place of the mixtape. Tune in! Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania, offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com. And listeners like you, who donate at wjffradio.org. You're listening to Radio Catskill, WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, 